One cannot but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries to merely comprehend a little of this mystery each day. Never lose a holy curiosity. Albert Einstein. Tonight's talk is on uh, the Piti Bojanga, the awakening factor of joyous interest or rapture. In the text, it's described as uh, imagine a weary traveler uh, covered in dust, thirsty, uh, who's long been away from any water and any rest, any shade. And hot and sweaty, he begins to approach an area where there's a lake. First he sees the signs, the indications that there's a lake. He sees uh, lotus leaves, people carrying lotus leaves and eating them. And then he sees uh, uh, wet men and women just coming out of the lake, refreshed, water dripping off of them, looking cool. And then he sees and hears wild fowl. And he sees a dense forest of green, like a, a net of jewels. And then he comes across the lake. Imagine that, that joyous uh, delight that rises in his mind. This is how, this is how they define piti, this intense delight or joyous interest that has the characteristic of rapture and satisfaction. And it has, a, has such a strength that it pervades all the other associated mental states in consciousness at that time, making the whole consciousness uh, this joyous delight, this rapturous quality. It fills both the mind and body with a lightness and agility. Body begins to feel really porous uh, almost like it can levitate at times. Uh, and we feel sensations of this intense delight, uh, this zest inside. At the times that it arises, there, there's no ill will or anger in the mind. Aversion just evaporates for those moments of the piti that's there. So this isn't strange to one in, in practice if at certain times when the conditions come together. Uh, the awesome interests just in the process of each moment. Of this mind-body uh, organism. The whole world that seems to arise in just a moment through the six sense doors. It's the sudden coming together and vanishing of the field of sights or sounds or scents, tastes, sensations in the body, or the thought emotive field of experience. The other bojangas of mindfulness, the foundation of mindfulness, and that investigation that goes, that penetrates beyond the concepts, the conceptual overlay, the energy that's been aroused, all this reveal a wondrous mystery coming into being and passing in just a moment. And when, the, when, the, when the factors of awakening come together, I mean, sometimes it's, 
It's as if everything is so magnified or amplified or in some ways things seem in such slow motion that you can actually sense the, the, even with, within its great velocity, we can sense this nature of the whole world coming together, hinging on less than a millisecond and vanishing altogether. Again, moment to moment. We step away from the sense of distancing that the proliferating mind, that papancha mind, the mind of concepts, uh, uh, that distancing quality gives way to this investigation, to this energy. And then this, this wondrous process, as if at sometimes we feel the awareness arising from within a, a sense impression. Like there's no sense of separation. There's just the experience of sound exploding into a million pieces and falling away again. Or a visual experience uh, comes together, coalesces and then disperses. The sensations in the body that each moment of the, this world appearing, the, this awareness is right in the heart of it. And at other times, we, it's as if we see just each moment's experience as moments of consciousness. A moment of consciousness is the experience of the world. So instead of the pure sound that was experienced with the sense imprint or the sight or the taste, sensation, now it's just moments of consciousness itself, moments of knowing. And the awareness appears with that. It's not separate from that. So some ways of experiencing reality is just through six kinds of consciousness, moment to moment. So in one moment, it's just seeing, and then just hearing, perhaps then smelling, tasting, sensing through the body organ or some mental image, emotive quality of mind. But it's all seen from just moments of consciousness, so swift, there's no time to even see or sense what the object itself might be. Rather, it's just this knowing, just this consciousness. Simultaneously, sometimes, we sense both the immediacy of this phenomena of dhammas, physical dhammas and mental dhammas, and their vastness. At the same time, the immediacy, these little particles that come in are, are so real and so clear for the moment of experiencing, and then it vanishes into nothingness. This is gone, utterly gone, leaving hardly a footprint. And simultaneous with that sometimes is just the sense of of the whole interconnected field from particles to galaxies and no sense of separation, space or time. It's all happening here like those navigators of old for whom stars weren't out there, ocean, wind, uh, sight, sense uh, weren't out there. They arose right at the sense door. Stars were experienced right here in consciousness in seeing, in this moment, as a taste, as a scent, as a sensation, whatever it was, not experienced as out there. Now in these moments when, 
when investigation and energy, mindfulness are all there, and this interest is really attuned, there also falls away even the subtlest concept of form in, in the sense of form of time or space. There is no separation. That's the reality. That's what happens when we step behind the uh, panyati, the concept, the conceptual world. So too, does time fall away? Does space fall away? Does any sense of separation give way? Often, an indication of this interest is, is really becoming sensitive to the sense impressions themselves. You know, that shocking sort of sense with a sudden sound, or sounds that seem to have no buffer. Uh, it, it, it seems to arise right inside your chest sometimes, even though the sound may be conceptually quite some ways away, or real sensitive to light. You go outside after a sitting, you open your eyes to the colors at sunset, and it seems so brilliant, it seems to stagger for a moment our sense of balance. And body sensations, the subtleties of tastes, you know, before sitting, I, you know, I didn't really have much of a, a sense of taste differentiation between all the different, you know, spicy and bland and uh, uh, sour and sweet and so forth. It's really interesting as a yogi to, to discern the different kinds of tastes that come up when we start getting this sensitive. Energy and confidence become really charged. Uh, with a power, and we feel inspired, we feel deep kind of pure desire for practice, to see more, to open. And this is the conditions coming together here. So that each breath takes on this, this awesome uh, display of phenomena, you know, of, of, of a world coming to be and disappearing in a moment. Each breath, each movement, each moment, each moment as phenomena perceived or each, each moment as con just consciousness, just the knowing mind arising, disappearing again. The texts describe five kinds of, of piti one can experience. The first, minor piti, so the sensations can feel like a, uh, like a, a thrilling energy in the body, thrilling, or goosebumps, or your hair seems to be standing on end. Momentary is the second kind of piti, rapture or joy. Uh, momentary is like instantaneous flashes, maybe you feel it as shivers down the spine, or flashes of lightning, just a sudden jolt of joy. Minor, momentary, showering, third kind of piti, described as a strong uh, flood of joy, like waves surging up on the sand and receding, and surging up again and receding. So you feel this quality of, of surges in the body. Joyous, surging, rapture, interest, uh, wondrous of the nature of phenomena in that moment. Uplifting 
piti is the fourth kind, uh, often experienced as kind of floating over your zafu or your chair, like a levitation. In fact, they say that it's this level of piti cultivated in the uh, samatha jhana practice, the deep absorption practices by those yogis who want to who want to levitate. And they go into this level of piti and make certain resolves with very powerful concentration, you know, to levitate, <laughs> to lift off. <laughs> but one can actually feel the sensations of that just sitting. Uh, you just feel like, sometimes you feel like uh, just floating, like milkweed in the wind. Just floating, hovering. You, can't, you don't feel any contact between your butt and the chair or the pillow. The most potent of these five kinds, uh, minor and momentary, showering, uplifting, uh, the fifth one, the strongest one, is pervading. All pervading. It's a rapturous joy that just suffuses the whole mind and body. It's like a lake that was once empty suddenly fills up. And just this kind of vibrating energy of, of rapture. Sometimes people experience this for you know, a good part of a sitting and, uh, and beyond. So the beginnings of PT can be felt as very uh, soft, velvetine sensations in the body or through the sense doors. Everything taking on a kind of a, a sparkle to it, and a feeling sometimes of hard to differentiate between one sense door and the other. So these images have sounds, and, and uh, sounds have images. Sometimes it's like that, floating, swaying, sometimes rocking back and forth. Uh, in walking meditation, it might feel at times like you're on a ship rocking, or you're walking on jello. Usually all these are pleasant. Although sometimes it's, you know, it gets a little scary. Because it's, uh, particularly the higher PTs, it's because of the, uh, the form falling away. And we don't have the kind, we don't have that familiar structure, the familiar sense of support by which we measure everything through our, our, our uh, vision and sight and the whole conceptual world that holds things together, all that begins to fall away. So it's just uh, s vibrations of sounds, or it's just color and form changing through the eye door, so forth. There are many levels of joy. Um, of which we know probably most of them. There's the uh, samsaric, uh, sensual joys. These are joys that are directly opposite of something, opposite of sadness or opposite of depression, opposite of sorrow. Sensuous pleasures, of course, arise uh, dependent on uh, taste and smell, sound, sight, touch, thoughts, emotions because they're connected with the sense doors in this way. 
sensuous, pleasant feelings, uh, joyous emotions, all due to pleasant things happening in our experience. Pleasant interface with the environment around us, world around us, our, our thought processes. It's a sense-based pleasure, and it's, a, you know, it's important to notice this distinction. Sensual pleasures are easy to cling to. With, with strong mindfulness, we can enjoy them with, uh, with less or without attachment. You can just start to see them and have a, a feeling for them, for their fleeting nature. That's why they're samsaric. They, they are dependent. They're dependent on, on the sense doors, on the sense pleasures happening. Many sensuous joys, uh, of course, have the ability to open us up to lead us into seeing more deeply, more clearly, lead us to uh, deeper kinds of joy. Nature can do this. Music can do this. Art. Uh, love. Relationships. Friendships. All connect us with something bigger than ourselves. All help us to sidestep how the experience seems to um, revert back to some distinct entity within us. And instead, there's a sense of an enlarged sense of being, an interconnected sense of being. Sometimes this happens just quite unexpectedly, you know. Some of you report just taking little walks in, in the forest and things as you knew it a moment ago give way to something else entirely. And it's like it's, you don't know where your skin ends and the air begins or it, what in your, in your visual or auditory field of experience, nothing seems out there or disconnected, separate from yourself. Sometimes uh, the amazing creatures of, uh, of the environment. Uh, just the other day, uh, Michelle and I were walking in the forest a couple kilometers from here on a new road, an old road, and kind of way off and a new trail that I had discovered biking a couple days before when I fell on my face. And I was going to show her where I fell on my face. And coming back, we're going up this little hill, and we were downwind, and some object was in the distance, about the distance of the back of the hall. And it just, you know, we stopped, we didn't say anything, and first thought coyote, no, then just thought fox, no very unusual, and then it was clearly a cat, a large cat, like a 60-pound cat, you know, and uh, it had a small tail, so it meant it wasn't a mountain lion, <laughs> uh, but a very, very large bobcat, and just watching that downwind for a while when it didn't see us, be its cat nature in, in its own realm, its own environment, that it knows so much better than any of us, and to, to see it move and, and its body and, uh, and look and smell and scent and, and touch and walk along a wall and 
get in the shade of a tree and so forth. It's just really amazing. It aroused that kind of, that awesome interest. You know, and, and, and even rapturous for those moments of just dissolving into the experience. You know, and then circling around when it was out of sight. And being able to see it for a little while longer, but then you know, aware that I was upwind and it soon just smelled me and looked and vanished just like that. Here and completely gone. <laughs> and moments like that arise in practice when every, every moment has this, this stunning quality to it of, of being so new and just like, the, uh, like that wildness you know, of which uh, we really are when we, when we shave away all the conditioning, all the buffers, all the protective covers there. Each moment is, is, has that kind of uh, still, silent, powerful presence. It's the cat, you know, walking along a rocky ledge. Samsaric sensual pleasures. And it's important to understand them and understand their, their nature, what they can give us, what they can't give us, where their limitations lie, in that they're fleeting, in that they are dependent on sense stores. Dharma pleasures. Dharma pleasures are supra-sensual. They're subtle, uh, ecstatic, in a way that's uh, beyond pleasure-based don't need sights and sounds. We don't need the sense doors in order to experience these. They're not dependent on the senses. Dhamma pleasures aren't dependent on the eye or the ear or the nose or the tongue or the body or thoughts. So in meditation, we experience many of these Dhamma pleasures as, uh, as uh, the meditative mind develops as samadhi becomes strong. Samadhi as unified heart-mind, unified mind-body. Stronger the samadhi, the more secluded the heart-mind from uh, uh, intrusions, the intrusions of hindrances, and the more oriented toward the inner pleasures and joys the more we kind of leave behind the objects of the senses. In fact, one these inner joys can take joy in the very phenomena of seeing. The joy coming from the phenomena of seeing, not from the sights, but from the very wonder of this being, in other words. The qualities of mind that develop uh, we're talking about piti tonight, rapture or joy, sukha, kind of happiness that's uh, also non-sense-based, a very deep and sweet mind-body-at-ease happiness. And calm should be talking about as another, as a um, awakening factor. Concentration, equanimity, all other awakening factors that I'll be speaking about in this series. All these are qualities of mind that come from meditation and their joys. They're deep kinds of pleasures that are uh, non-sense-based pleasures. Brahma-viharas, 
metta, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy. These two are kinds of joy that don't depend on anything. Unconditional love doesn't depend on being loved back or, or being any different than who we are for that love or whoever someone else is. They, they can just be who they are. They don't need to deserve the love. Just their being is deserving. Bliss, joy, rapture, ecstasy, calm, a sweet, subtle happiness. All these qualities we, we're learning to be mindful of. They're just as important as noting the hindrances, noting sights and sounds. Uh, at this time in practice, it's very useful, very important to start turning awareness inward on these mental qualities themselves. It brings them forth. It nurtures them. It, it, it acknowledges their presence. The body and mind become more at ease as we notice these inner pleasures. And the mind turned towards what the Buddha called uh, entering into the emptiness. Because these inner joys are experienced uh, usually with a great deal of mindfulness and experience in a way that's uh, so richly satisfying because it, it doesn't depend on the usual external sensual pleasures. Their, their not-self nature is often easier to see. Their impersonal nature. That is, there's, uh, although clinging is certainly possible in these inner pleasures as well, uh, in the retreat setting with guidance, you know, we notice even those subtle <laughs> clingings. So that these states of bliss and rapture and joy and peace and calm are seen more clearly as their real nature, empty, selfless. And by that understanding, it's more easy to, to infer the empty nature of our sensual pleasures as well, which makes it easier to enjoy them. Think of it this way, that we actually limit our capacity to enjoy pleasure by our attachment to it. So as we learn more the nature of things as they are, uh, that, there's, that it's empty of self, that there's nothing there really to be attached to, to hold on to, there's nothing that's going to last, then it actually opens us up to really enjoying the whole uh, sensual world. Uh, far more, because there's less, there's less clinging, there's less fear in the mind. There's always fear, it's always tied in with attachment. There's some samsaric sensual pleasures uh, and dhamma pleasures like through meditation, some, uh, the samadhi, unified mind, uh, the Brahma Viharas, insights, which I'll talk a little bit about when we talk about how to reflect in ways that, that arouse, that strengthen rapture. Uh, and Nibbanic pleasure, the pleasure, the joy of the unconditioned itself, the unconditional uh, bliss of the end of suffering. Now, with 
nibbanic joys, it's touching the deepest kind of happiness or peace. Uh, it can be momentary, such as the different stages of awakening, and it can be permanent, such as the, a fully awakened being. But it differs uh, dramatically from samsaric joy in that the samsaric joy, of course, is ultimately repetitive and, and limiting. I mean, it has its inherent in samsaric joy is dukkha, just by its very nature of being impermanent. What's impermanent is dukkha. It's, it's unsatisfactory, it's, it's fragile, it's unreliable. It's not something we can depend upon. And it's always in terms of opposites, play of opposites. That's, that is, the joy is always in relation to a sorrow, the gain in relation to a loss, the praise in relation to a blame, and so forth. And the nibbanic or unconditioned joy, however, is without limit. It's without the cycle of appearing, disappearing, with a cycle of life and death. And there is no opposites. There's no causes and conditions here. It's the unconditioned. It's just nice to have a map to know that, you know, uh, it just gets better and better. <laughs> no matter which way you look. <laughs> In fact, there's no reason why the path of awakening shouldn't be a joyous path. Certainly, it's often difficult and unpleasant. At one moment, we seem to be in the, uh, the, the maelstrom of Mara, exploding everywhere, inside, outside. And, and another moment, we seem to be drinking the ambrosia of the gods. It's the nature of practice. But we, there's a, a way of holding it all as sacred space. You know, our, uh, not only retreat time, but our life as we begin to see uh, that life itself, our life itself is practice. Our everyday life, ordinary life. We can hold it all in this sacred space. And this start, begin to discover that we can approach it all with a kind of, uh, with a joyousness. You know, a deeper kind of joy. It's not dependent on things just going pleasant the way we like it to. You know, a good buzz in the last sitting. I want that buzz again. That's not what it's all about. In fact, the deeper kinds of insight often come from when you're not feeling that buzz. You're feeling like you're burning. Or the whole body seems like it's crumbling. Are you going through a big dukkha thing, it's all misery, or it's all quite disgusting, or it's all quite fearful. Those are some of the most profound and significant, important stages of practice. And they keep just taking us to a deeper kind of, of joy, a non-dependent joy, a dhamma joy, a dhamma pleasure. So in practice, we often discover much of our an innate joy of being. You know, we could kind of compare it with the, the joy 
that uh, wondrous joy of an, of an infant, just at one with its environment through all the sense doors, and the, and the joyous wisdom of a wise woman or man. That's, that's all in there. It's all hidden in many of us. It's all often hidden in the pain of being. The joy of being is often hidden in the pain of being. So in practice, we begin to open with compassion, uh, with courage, and with understanding. Right from the beginning, this, uh, this trying to hold this attitude of detachment, this understanding of no self. Otherwise, we'll be, we're liable to blame, as fixed blame. It'll either be our fault for not being joyous, or their fault, the world's fault or caretaker's fault, or parent's fault. Uh, and either of those solidify, in an unhealthy way, the sense of oneself. But as we go in with this, with this combination of courage, compassion, understanding, and, uh, and just start experiencing the conditions of our inner being, this, both the pain and the innate joy will come out. For some, sometimes it's one, and then the other. For sometimes, it's the other way around. That is, sometimes people go through a lot of dukkha, a lot of pain, and, and right down it seems that the very core of their being is, is painful and fraught with fear and, uh, and contraction. Uh, and, but by staying with that and keep re keeping that courage, that compassion, that uh, awareness uh, free, you know, around that, holding it and and moving back and then moving into it again, back and forth, enough times, it starts to become, it starts to crack or like an egg or it starts to become transparent. And out of that is this release of this uh, joyous enthusiasm, just the, the, a core joy of life. Sometimes it happens the other way. It's immense rapturous experience and feelings uh, feeling a joy or an intensity of, of, of peace or delight never felt before, often followed in its wake by a lot of pain, a lot of dukkha. Often the sense of one's worthiness and lack of worthiness comes up around experiencing this piti, this joy. So for many, uh, they feel this injured sense, this being, this uh, the, this vulnerability, not feeling worthy, not feeling of any having any value. And to bring that courage and that compassion, that understanding, to understand this this injured part of our being, to understand the difference between the um, a healthy pride and an unhealthy pride or sense of being. In the Pali, you hear of a manna, which is conceit, any kind of comparing. Better, worse, or the same. Any way we try to measure ourselves, and so in ways that we've uh, had injury uh, to ourselves when we're really young, we might always be stuck in this unhealthy comparing uh, worse than, better than, the same as. What's called uh, in the Buddhist Pali, sevi tabba manna, 
it means healthy uh, pride or a healthy sense of oneself. And that comes from uh, uh, identifying through awareness, compassion, uh, our, that core part of our being that is uh, beyond comparing, that is beyond that place of injury to our sense of self, a place of ultimate value and worthiness, a place before uh, fear and shame. This sevitabhamana uh, is uh, the, uh, this arising deep joy, enthusiasm, zest for life. That's called the healthy sense of oneself, sevitabhamana. And that we try to nurture. That is what helps us appreciate this time we have, this fleeting time we have on the earth in being alive, in doing the work of, of, of healing and uh, understanding and liberation for ourselves and other beings. Can we risk feeling such fundamental joy? Can we risk allowing ourselves to feel this incredible gift of being alive and having the tools to do this work? It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of surrender. It takes a lot of gratitude. It takes a lot of love and kindness, all the elements that come together. If our, if our path to practice isn't paved with, with happiness, with enough happiness and joy, we'll lose interest. And it's just so easy to fall back into one of those security traps. And so how to keep alive that constant uh, venturing spirit, risk-taking. You know, can you go deeper inside? Can you find more facets of your being that are laying fallow in there? Can you discover more about the relationship with life through the sense doors? Can you understand more about the different kinds of joys? kinds that are fleeting and the ones that we want to cling to and those ones that are cultivated through this inner practice. It's important to have you know, symbols of, of the sacred in the, in the, uh, uh, that embody that joy. Here's one for you. Once the Bodhisattva was born, as an ox, and given away in repayment to a poor Brahmin farmer. The Brahmin farmer loved him as his own child and nurtured him and you know, bottle-fed him and gave him the best of everything and, 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 and uh, gave him a good upbringing. So when, great, when, the, when the ox grew up, he had these qualities, very strong and very compassionate. Of course, very wise. He could move anything that, one, that the farmer needed to be moved. Huge stumps, gigantic boulders, 
and plow the field morning to night. And he, yet he was so gentle that the village children could ride on his back and feel safe. So he brought the Brahmin farmer so much joy, he, he named this ox Great Joy. So once Great Joy thought, this Brahmin farmer has been so nice to me all these years. I'm going to repay him. I feel so much gratitude. So he went and he stuck his head through the um, windowless uh, pane into the mud hut of the poor Brahmin farmer. He's sitting there having some tea and uh, mending some sandals and reading an old book of poetry. And Great Joy said, my master. And the poor Brahmin farmer looked up at him, looked down at his book and looked up at him again and said, what? And Great Joy said, my friend. And he was just about ready to pass out. He said, well, I have an ox who can talk. <laughs> and Great Joy said, listen, my friend, there are, there are much more greater wonders in this world. Listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go into the village and f go to the uh, tea shop, find a, a, uh, a merchant, wealthy merchant, you can tell by the clothes that they wear, and I want you to bet them a thousand pieces of money. In those days, that was like $10 million. A thousand pieces of money that you, can, that you can carry, that I can carry, 100 carts filled to the brim of rocks and stones and boulders. What? Said the promise. Listen, I can't even get over that you're talking. And you're telling me that you're going to do this impossible feat? You're crazy. I can't believe that. Great Joy said, trust me. <laughs> and the poor Brahmin farmer, he just had enough. He didn't want to hear him talk anymore. So he said, okay. So he went into town. He went to, he went to the chai shop, ordered some chai, and some sweets, and sure enough, after a while, uh, uh, someone with nice cloth came in and invited him down uh, and ex exchanged pleasantries, and pretty soon the farmer says, I have a strong ox. And the merchant said, I have 20 strong oxes. Is it this oxen? It's their nature to be strong, you know. I, so what? No, my ox is strong. My ox is stronger than any of your oxen. In fact, it's stronger than all of your oxen. No, it's not. Everything has their limitations, said the uh, merchant. And uh, apparently you don't, aren't aware of that. Poor Brahmin said, listen, my ox is so strong it could pull a hundred carts, and I know all twenty of your oxen couldn't do that, around the village square, filled with rocks and boulders. Uh-huh, said the merchant. And poor Brahmin said, I'm willing to bet you a thousand pieces of money. Okay, said the merchant. You, you have your ox here in the morning. I'll have the carts filled to the brim. And they, they made a deal, and the farmer went home. The merchant started to spread the news. You know, and pretty soon it was going all over the village. People were saying, a thousand pieces of money, hundred carts filled with rocks, one ox. And the bets were going on and so forth, and they were all quite certain that this ox couldn't do it. So it was heavily weighed against the poor uh, Brahmin and his great joy. 
Well, the Brahmin was walking home and he just entered the territory of dread. <laughs> he said, what have I done? This is, I mean, am I imagining this? Is this, is this, you know, and he looked at this paper from the merchant that he signed this thing and, you know, he just was miserable and he got home and he could hardly eat and he went to bed and all, he just tossed and turned. It was one of those completely sleepless nights and he had nightmares of every time in his life he, he believed someone and was betrayed or he was, you know, all those awful feelings that he felt the worst about himself, most disconnected and most distrusting and woke up in a bad mood. Went out to the stall and there's great joy, swinging the tail, you know, it's a big deal, eating a golden straw, but the, the farmer was he threw a rope around his neck and grabbed the switch and kind of pulled him off to town. He was scared and not dealing with anything. Just out of touch. So they kind of, uh, he went in trying to kept pulling, great joy, great joy, just sauntering along. And they reached the village just as the sun was hitting the tallest mango tree. And there was the whole village. And the Brahmin his heart sunk to his belly and his belly sunk to his feet. And he said, oh no, this is bad. This is really bad. And the bets were kind of going on. And, and, but he put on, a, he put on a front. He had no other choice. He put on a front and uh, uh, you know, puffed his chest out and acted like you know, the stern master of this beast. Walked around. And the signal was given by the uh, merchant. You know, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready," said the march. Said the farmer, and he walked up. You know, and with a cool, distant, disconnected voice, he said, "All right, you wretch, you beast!" You know, and he swatted him with a switch. Move. You know, and the, the yoke had been put on them with all these carts and everything. And Great Joy thought, "What? Wretch is it? Beast?" switch on my back. I'm not moving a millimeter. And he ground his big oak-like hoofs, legs deep into the dirt. And then all the, uh, all the uh, villagers then started throwing you know, sticks and tomatoes and iceberg lettuce and all that stuff, just throwing them on the, on the, uh, on the great joy and the, merchant and the um, poor farmer and whatnot. So after a while, he just in humiliated defeat. You know, he walked and gave his, all his wealth, everything he had, to the merchant and walked home, head down. Great Joy didn't care at all. It was, meant nothing to him, one way or the other. But he was a little upset that his friend was upset. So they got back and the, uh, the, the farmer went into his, into his uh, hut, put his head down on his old book, Poetry and began streaming tears down on it. Great joy came, put his head in. Why are you crying? Why am I crying? Said the merchant. I mean, said the farmer. What do you mean? You've, you've, you've. I've lost everything. You made me do this crazy feat that I knew you couldn't do, and I've lost everything. And besides that, I'm the village fool now. That's why I'm crying. You betrayed me. Calm and cool, 
Great Joy said, who betrayed whom, actually? My master. Tell me this. In all these many, many, many years, was there ever a stump or a rock I didn't move for you? Or uh, was I ever unable to plow your fields? Did I ever soil your doorway or break a water vessel? Did I ever hurt a child? I refused to let them ride on my back. Has there been any way I've ever let you down? Well, no. Actually, none that I can remember, said the poor farmer. Well, actually, I felt betrayed this morning. You didn't trust. Not only you didn't trust, you were, you were cruel. You said these cruel things. It's a good thing I'm so forgiving, you know. <laughs> I'm real big. <laughs> but it hurt my feelings, nevertheless, that you were this way. So some tears, you know, more tears trickled down the poor Brahmin farmer. And he said, you know, you're right. I, I, I shouldn't have treated you that way. Okay, never mind, said Great Joy. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go back into town. I want you to bet 2,000 pieces of money that I can do the same thing tomorrow morning. Okay, said the poor Brahmin farmer. And he ran in, he found the same merchant. And he made the same proposal. The merchant thought, you know, fools like this don't grow on trees every day. That's another, that's more money, that's another 2,000. So okay, they made the deal. And then he came back home, but his whole mood was shifted, the farmer. And that night he slept like a babe. He had all those, those great dreams of every time he was ever completely unconditionally affirmed, you know, and he was trusted. And he was made to feel his, his real value. So he woke up feeling this, this healthy sense and self healthy pride in himself and he walked out and there's great joy in the stables it's, and the sun's just peeking up and it's like this electricity is, is firing off the, uh, the golden hide of great joy. His horns seem larger than ever, hooking through the clouds. And they walk in together. They walk in together, you know, no ropes, no switches, nothing. And the village sees them in the distance, this, this glowing aura, you know, and they think, boy, is that great joy? Looks bigger today. And you know, some of the people start to doubt the bets that they were making and so forth. But they came up, and, they, and this time it was a Brahmin farmer who ordered the merchant's uh, attendants to put the yoke on his back. He said, be sure you do it gently now, because it was a massive yoke. And then uh, that's connected to a cart, connected to 99 other carts. And then at the signal, the farmer walks up his friend and he says my beloved friend and he puts a, a lay a flower lay a garland around him. <laughs> I want you to show him now your great courage and your great compassion and your great strength and so this great joy his chest you know, moved out a bit took a big breath and then he took a step the cart behind him inched forward, and all the other 99s behind that, they inched forward, 
and he went to, and he went a little faster, and they went faster, and he went into a, a slow trot, and then a fast trot, and then a canter, and then a gallop. So he was galloping around the village square, just around and around, turned the square into a circle, and entrenched it out, and people were just yelling. They couldn't believe what was going on, throwing money this time instead of tomatoes and flowers. And when it was ended, of course, they were celebrated, but not so much for the great feat, but for the great feeling that was there, this uh, emanation of, of joy coming from great joy, this emanation of deep peace, and the friendship between this, uh, the ox and his master, the poor Brahmin farmer, and they walked home, this time with great sense of dignity, self-respect between them. There are many teachings that come out of any one story like this, but in the context of tonight's topic, there are a few things, and that is, one is uh, the importance for the, the gentle, kind, compassionate approach to ourselves in practice. We approach ourselves with this kind of care and kindness, uh, and the fruit of that, the gift of that, will be the kind of energy or strength that we need to do this practice. The approach of, of meanness or fear or cruelty that we saw in the story resulted in nothing, really, except a good teaching. And also that joy isn't far away. Real deep inner joy. You know, the joy in who we are, in our gratitude of just being, the gift of just being, and appreciation for all that we are, all the limitations, all the conditions that went into making us who we are, all the painful ones, as well as the pleasant ones, have all had something to do with coming to practice, with the desire to awaken. I'll just mention a few of the things to reflect on, ways to develop rapture. Reflecting on the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. The purity of the Buddha's mind and heart uh, has been loved by everyone. Humans, devas, brahmas, uh, from practitioners from time immemorial. The silent Buddhas who don't teach, the great disciples, the arhants, the attained ones, all the seekers on the path, all have walked this path before us. And Buddhas vow to liberate all beings, motivated from their own immeasurable compassion and guided by their full illumination, their ability to see things. So the best inspiration of the Buddha is through the practice. 
Buddha himself said regarding seeing the nature of things arising and passing. He said, one who sees the Dhamma sees me. And when we see the nature of things arising and passing, this very important initial insight, we're seeing the Buddha, we're being the Buddha. The reflection on Dhamma, we can reflect on uh, Sila, Samadhi, and Vipassana. Sila, essentially the gift of fearlessness. That is, we give to others, our, ourselves and others, that quality of not being afraid, of feeling safe, a feeling that they won't be harmed. Samadhi, the, that coolness of, of mind that's uh, collected, that's focused, that's uh, able to experience those supra-sensual pleasures. Uh, a concentrated mind is where we experience the, the joy of renunciation, uh, the joy of, of rapture and of, of happiness and of calm and of concentration and of peace. We just reflect on those benefits, those gifts of samadhi. And we can reflect on vipassana. That is, the rapture that comes from seeing reality. Even a moment of seeing the arising and passing of things. Uh, and the ensuing happiness of clarity that comes from seeing the nature of things. And later on in vipassana, the happiness of equanimity. When the mind is cooled and balanced before any and all formations, be they enticing or threatening, be they inner or outer. The joy and gratitude of freedom from suffering. Even to reflect and incline the mind toward that freedom. So, Buddha Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhammas, Sila, Samadhi, Vipassana. Sangha, our companions, our companions on the path. Those who, who lead us or guide us or nurture us. Those with whom we practice with. Often I think of, I'm reminded of uh, about 20 minutes from this monastery where I... Uh, uh, practice and teach in Upper Burma. It's this old mountain monastery, 700 years old, one of the earlier ones there, uh, famous for two brothers, who, two friends, brother monks, who one or two centuries ago lived on either side of this valley. There's two monasteries. And they have deep caves, caves as deep as this hall. And you can visit them to this day. And, and the, you go inside the caves, they're very cool deep in there, and there's places to sleep and sit in the bathroom and so forth. And there's, uh, you walk up inside this cave to a little perch on the outside uh, that you can only get to from inside the cave, but it's a, a wooden kuti uh, where they would practice um, when, it was, uh, when the weather was permitting, you know, when it was no longer hot season. 
Uh, and so, but they're, they're like exact. On either side of the valley, two very similar monasteries, two very similar caves. And the story is, is that these are Parikama brothers, brother monks. And they each vowed to practice hard and wish for the other's enlightenment, as well as practicing for their own. And they vowed whoever first reached enlightenment, full enlightenment, arhantship, they would let the other one know by lighting a, a lantern so the other one could see and then take joy in it. Take joy in their, in their best friend's full enlightenment. So they both practice really hard through the cool season and the hot season, the rainy season, and many seasons round and round and they're practicing not seeing each other. And then one night from East Parikama looking to the West Parikama cave you could see a light. And from the west Parikama, looking to the east Parikama cave, you could also see a light. The two lanterns went off simultaneously. Oh, and I wanted to talk more about devas, but I'll do that in another talk. Devas are a good way to arouse rapture. Uh, because they live in such rapture. But for faith types, there is... A, the sound for faith types sound like chanting if you're a faith type be sure you come to the chants here at night or in the morning uh, uh, the sound of Dhamma going out is a beautiful sound that arouses that joyous rapture in the mind or, or listening to an inspiring discourse or reading inspiring Dhamma or seeing someone being really mindful, even like serving their food really mindfully. You can feel this hit of, of rapture in just noticing that. I love the sound of the, uh, in, in Burma sitting in this, this, uh, these rolling hills of 700 nunneries and monasteries that have been there some for a thousand years. And there's ancient pagodas. At the very top of the pagodas, looking like umbrellas, filigree ornaments with little bells. You know, they say, they say in Burma that there's no sweeter sound in all samsara than the sound, the tinkling sound of the temple bell. And you know what? They're right. But sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.